there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, does that mean there's no value to movements like slow fashion, eating local, and fair trade? Welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. This episode is our season one opener. Very exciting. To introduce our new format, we looked back on the question that animated the first 101 episodes of the podcast. Is ethical consumption really possible? Should we try anyway? If you enjoy this conversation, please show your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. Let's get started. Ethical consumption, Kristen. What is it? No idea. End end episode. End of episode. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually did ask ChatGPT about this, if you'd like, as though we hadn't done an entire like three-year podcast about ethical consumption. Oh, phew. (laughs) AI is here for our jobs, Kristen. Yes. (laughs) Even our unpaid ones. (laughs) What does ChatGPT have to say? I will say that ChatGPT did a pretty good job of summarizing what ethical consumption is. I want to flesh out its answer a little bit more because I think it gave a very boilerplate definition. But hey, boilerplates are something in a factory. I don't know. They're there for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As someone who struggles to frame stuff, I can see myself using this tool in the future. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Yeah. So ChatGPT explains ethical consumption is the practice of making purchasing decisions that take into account the social and environmental impact of the products or services being consumed. That's true. Yep. So it goes on to say this can include considering factors such as working conditions of those who produce the product, the environmental impact of the production process, and the sustainability of the product itself. Any problems with that? No, all of that makes sense to me. I would agree. Uh, ChatGPT then goes on to sort of make us a bold claim in favor of ethical consumption, (laughs) arguing that there's some evidence to suggest that ethical consumption can be effective in promoting positive social and environmental change. I think that's something that we'll get into a little bit more, but just to give you the rationale, I I think ChatGPT nailed it on the head. This is typically what the rationale is for ethical consumption. So they say, for example, buying products from companies that have a track record of fair labor practices and environmentally friendly production processes can help to support those companies and encourage others to adopt similar practices. Similarly, choosing products that are made from sustainable materials or that have a low environmental impact can reduce the overall environmental impact of consumption. The reason I wanted to use AI, which people might be like, what is Kristen doing? <laughs> <laughs> like there are a lot of perspectives out there on ethical consumption, but I think you can get a good sense from this what like the the overall argument in favor of ethical consumption is. And the overall argument against ethical consumption we'll get into a little bit, but it generally just denies that it works at all and says that it's like uber capitalist or whatever, Um, which there's I think there's a lot of merit to that. Uh, But I also think that this vision of ethical consumption is a bit narrower than what we've been talking about on the show. So I want to get into what I would say pullback's vision of ethical consumption is before we sort of interrogate whether it's good or bad. Yeah, thank you ChatGPT for giving us a really <laughs> a really simple explanation because Kristen and I like to delve into things. So it's nice to have there that as a starting point and also we're current. <laughs> yeah, we're hip. We know about AIs. 
<laughs> so yeah, that was like the general perspective. When most people think about ethical consumption, they think about that. For me though, um, and I think Kyla, to a certain extent, this is how you view it too. So ethical consumption, I think is really about realizing that we as individuals have power. And so more specifically, it's about five different mm -hmm. kinds of things. So the first thing is forming considered habits. So that's things like just remembering to bring reusable bags with you, tweaking your habits gradually over time so that what you're doing in your everyday habits really matches your values, whatever those are. So you can actually almost think of that as like, for philosophy nerds out there, it's like Aristotelian virtue ethics, right? We're developing into better people over time by forming considered habits. And that's something that you can do in the way that you consume and exist in the world. Secondly, it's about knowing more about what you're buying and where it comes from, right? So looking into companies or thinking about, you know, am I going to eat meat? What are the boundaries on that? Thinking about the kinds of clothing that you buy, how often you're buying things, making sure that you're sort of really looking into things. So it's really about asking questions and that helps you to form considered habits, right? That consideration before you form the habits. It's also about knowing more about where stuff goes when you get rid of it. And that's, I think that's something that people often forget when we're talking about ethical consumption. It's about the whole life cycle of owning, consuming, or using a thing, right? And a lot of what we've talked about in previous podcast episodes is like, what is the most responsible way that you can get rid of something when you need to? How can you extend the life cycle of resources? How can you really sort of consider and honor the energy and the resources that go into the things that we use, because we have to consume things, you know, we have meat sacks, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> we have to eat and we need to stay in shelters and we need to apparently buy hats for video games. I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Kristen, Kristen's calling me out there. We, we recorded an episode that will come out later where I just talk about how much I love buying hats in Pokemon Go. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> I don't understand video games, but that's all right. So the fourth thing that I think ethical consumption is about is, and this is actually starting to be where most people place boundaries on ethical consumption, but I think that it counts, is just being active community members. So taking part in groups that match our values, um, that can be things like contributing to community fridges, participating in clothing swaps, or even using things like clothing rental groups or tool libraries. It's not only about our consumption in like that straightforward capitalist sense, but also how we get resources in like reciprocal networks and things like that. So in a, in a certain way, it is pushing back against capitalism if we're taking that kind of action and we're not just treating ethical consumption as like, I bought a Patagonia sweater, you know, <laughs> for example. Uh, and then the last thing is, is being active citizens. And this, again, is something that's often not included in the definition, but I would say that it is. A lot of our ethical consumption problems actually stem from a lack of action at the collective or political level. So if we want to be ethical consumers, that's also about participating actively in our democratic system. Uh, that means voting, it means going to protests, writing your representatives, signing petitions um, about things that you care about. And it's also about writing companies to ask them questions and to tell them about practices that you don't like. So that that is what I think ethical consumption is. Does that sort of track with you, Kyla? It really does. And I think it's the only reason that we were able to keep the podcast going the way that we did for three years, because if we had stopped at the first three points, I don't think you and I would have been able to continue 
believing in it, which is, I, I think, where a lot of the criticism comes in. And so I really appreciate that you added those last two components because that's where you and I were getting disenfranchised in, in thinking that maybe focusing too much on the first three points is not giving a platform to the the more valuable parts of it, which are the collective action, um, which is what I have found over the last three years, I am believing more in as a solution, which I think is where we've had issues with guests um, <laughs> pushing back when they see ethical consumption in our podcast sort of blurb, uh, being like, well, we would like to talk to you, but we don't think ethical consumption is a solution. And we then have to go back and be like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not what we're about. <laughs> we're not just about buying things. We're also about, you know, like <laughs> participating in community movements. And yeah, the starting point is those first three uh, where you're sort of thinking about what you're buying and how you're getting rid of it and how you're prolonging your life. And then, and then it leads into the next things, right? Where you're like, okay, I, I've set up these really good habits. I no longer have to think when I go to the grocery store and like look at 12 different peanut butters and be like, oh no, which peanut butter is the most ethical? You know, I, I've chosen my peanut butter. I don't need to make that decision again. So now there's space in my life to continue to grow and to do more. But also I've asked questions and now I understand why there are so many issues with sweatshops in places like Bangladesh. And now I understand what some of the problems with, let's say, factory farming are or why we might need something called a modern slavery act for to make sure that um, forced labor isn't in major companies' supply chains. The first few steps, yeah, they might seem like they're superficial and in a certain way they are. Like it's really easy for anybody to carry a reusable water bottle and like to think that you've solved the world by doing that is like, that's obviously silly. But those low barrier entry points are a really good way to start having conversations about bigger topics. And I think that's what we tried to do with the podcast in its sort of first instantiation. And I really think that's something that's super important about ethical consumption, right? It draws people in in a way that is non-alienating and it allows them to sort of become comfortable with the kinds of action that are easiest to do if you haven't really been questioning society. Um, and then you can realize the limitations of that and progress on to other steps for the future. Yeah, which I think is kind of where we're at in our own journey. <laughs> Framing our episodes around the consumer or, or the individual didn't feel like enough for us anymore. And so we were ready to kind of move up that ladder a little bit in our own way. I don't know if that is how you feel, Kristen. Yeah, I think that's broadly true, but I do want to just take a second to talk about the history of ethical consumption and why action that is linked to our role as consumers, that's actually still a really important thing and was really radical when it was something that was sort of first discussed. Love it or hate it, we live in a capitalist society. And <laughs> <laughs> I hate it, but go on. <laughs> but given that that's true, whether you like it or not, one of our most important but least talked about social roles is that of the consumer, right? It's one of the most frequent ways that we interact with different organizations and groups by spending money on things or, you know, trying to get away from spending money around things. Like maybe you're a freegan and power to you. But still, most of us probably have some form of capitalist consumption relations that we engage in. It's just impossible to live in the world 
unless you like, you know, live in a shack in the woods <laughs> without it, right? And this is something that activists in the early 1900s understood quite well in the, in the late 1800s. So one of our holiday episodes in the first version of Pullback talked about the story of Florence Kelly and the founding of the National Consumers League in 1899. Do you remember that story at all, Kyla? I do, but I would like to hear it again, Kristen. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about it in as much detail as I did last time, uh, but Florence Kelly, very cool lady. She was a leader in Chicago's anti-sweatshop movement, and as part of her activism, just a part of it, she also did a lot of other things like factory inspections and was really also working for public policy solutions. But part of her activism uh, involved creating something called the white label. So that was one of the first ethical product labels that existed out there. So essentially, garment factories that met the National Consumers League's fairness and safety standards they were granted what was called a white label. Um, and that sounds kind of sketchy, but I, I looked into it in Florence Kelly, very cool on racial justice for the time. So uh, I don't know what, what the, the name was about. Maybe it was related to the term like blacklist. That may have been why they chose that. But essentially, the NCL creates this label um, and then they appeal to this growing group of middle class female consumers to purchase white label approved products. So it's this this new idea that's happening at the time, right? It's the first time we're really talking in society about the idea of a consumer. Um, and it's the first time that women are actually using some financial power to make some financial decisions. And so activists sought to take that new idea, that new consumer power that they were seeing, and to use that to push for change. The white label campaign was one of the first movements that actually recognized the economic centrality of the consumer and argued that consumers had actually a moral duty to use their power by withholding their dollars from unethical factories. And I'll just use a quote from Florence Kelly to give an example of this. So just for some context around this quote, the white label really focused um, on women's undergarments as like its main emphasis. That was what they thought could most effectively be drawn on. They would need to, to choose like a small subset of the industry to start, and uh, they chose undergarments. And they chose women's undergarments because they knew that women um, were sort of a new subset of consumers and were especially like, you know, it was, it was more sort of like upper class women, but were more likely to be, be willing to buy into this argument. So it was a strategic choice. Kelly said in 1901, we can have cheap underwear righteously made and clean, or we can have cheap underwear degradingly made and unclean. Henceforth, we are responsible for our choice. So it was this argument, essentially, that purchasing had some kind of moral content to it, that you could either purchase ethically or unethically. And, like, that's not to say that this is an isolated tactic. A lot of the times people treat ethical consumption as this zero-sum game, right? There's this, this notion that if you're focusing on individual solutions, you can't also yell at billionaires about super yachts and push for policy action. And that's just not true. Ethical consumption has always been one part of a broader set of tactics to seek collective action. And promoting the white label is a great example of this because it was typically the first project that was undertaken by new local consumers groups. So they would join these groups, promote the white label, and it would serve as a sort of civic space where women were talking to each other about ethics and they were talking about the problem of sweatshops. And they then 
worked within those locals to expand state responsibility over labor rights. The leagues that were formed forged close relationships with factory inspectors, that's how Florence Kelly got involved in the first place. They advanced public awareness through women's civic groups, um, because a lot of the same members were parts of both, and they lobbied for protective legislation. And ultimately, workers' protections were passed in legislatures. That's true. But the white label campaign was a way to publicize the cause and to bring in new supporters. So it was an important tactic in order to get that collective solution. Um, So I really disagree with this idea that you can sever the two and only focus on one. We need a diversity of tactics. This isn't just the example of sweatshops. There are lots of other examples that we could have drawn on here. We had an earlier episode on Operation Breadbasket, which do you remember what that was about, Kyla? Yeah, it was about the civil rights movement basically coming together to only support businesses that employed, especially businesses in Black neighborhoods that employed Black workers. Yeah, exactly. And so it was never the argument that you you would just have these Operation Breadbasket boycotts and then you were done. That was never the idea. But it was a really effective tactic and one way to sort of use the power that at the time, basically what had happened is a lot of, there was a lot more economic power in Black communities, but people were spending money at grocery stores um, that wouldn't hire them, you know? And there was this notion that the money was leaving the community. And so they used their power as consumers to be able to make sure that that economic power was was fairer, you know? It was one way to express power as part of a broader movement. So yeah, that's that's how I see ethical consumption in its best possible version. Yeah, I would agree. And I would say that my hesitation with ethical consumption after years of studying it (laughs) is when people don't see it as including those extra pieces. So I see it as a great gateway activism. And my problem is that when like companies or anyone who's kind of like benefiting from the capitalist system tells us that the buck stops with us and that and that once you've bought your Patagonia sweater, you don't need to do any more. You know what I mean? Like the danger is when people think that what they've done is enough and then they stop engaging because they are patting themselves on the back over the thing that they've done. Yeah. And it's like often this perspective of ethical consumption as greenwash. And the Patagonia examples may be a little unfair there because they actually do like walk the walk a little bit more than most companies. (laughs) But yeah, it's this idea that you can't just say, oh, I bought my H&M fast fashion sweater, but it has some recycled polyester. So solved it. You know, that's not where the conversation ends. Yeah. Yeah. Patagonia (laughs) is a bad example. But also like even when you're even when you're buying something that is good, what we've learned over the last three years, Kristen, is that supply chains are fucked. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really, really hard, even when you're doing your best to actually, if you're spending money in a store, do so in a way where someone isn't getting hurt along the way, whether it's a person, an animal, the environment, whatever. Yeah, which I think goes back to this idea that ethical consumption, yeah, it's about our role as consumers, people that use resources. We all use resources. We need food to live. We need clothing to live. We need shelter to live. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that it's all about buying like sustainable brands or this like hyper-capitalist version of con- ethical consumption. But I do want to, to dig into that notion a little bit more because I do think there's a, an important discussion to be had about this, this notion that consumerism is an inherently capitalist idea, and that's true, um, but 
Does that mean that ethical consumption or consumer movements are inherently pro-capitalist? Like, can you push back against the system? Yeah, yeah. And I love that idea. And I love that we're going to talk about it because I think, and like I mentioned earlier, we, we ex- we've experienced this disconnect where activists will kind of disregard it as a solution um, for the reasons that I mentioned where like cap- capitalism is like, no more, you've spent your money, no more, no more needs to be done. And so <laughs> our activist friends kind of like, and that's what I like about our show is that we're kind of meeting people where they are. It's hard to get started in an activism movement. Even now, like I volunteered with Dogwood over the summer and I was like, oh, that was boring and hard, you know? So like, <laughs> it's it's important to, I love you, Dogwood. <laughs> They're great. It's just that volunteering is boring and hard. Doesn't matter what you're doing. And so like, if someone can start by buying a different chocolate bar, you know, that's where we started. And I have come a long way, but not all the way. And I've had a leg up by doing like a very intense project with you this whole time. You know what I mean? So <laughs> there's value in it. I've been listening to an audiobook called How to Be Perfect. It's by the guy that wrote The Good Place. I finished it. It's so good. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm still working my way through it. But one of the things I really like about that book is he talks about inquiry as a really important moral act. So the mere fact that you're asking questions and trying to know more about consumption decisions, I mean, he's not framing it as consumption decisions. He's framing it as like all moral actions, but that that has some kind of value to it. And I think that sort of notion of ethical consumption as a gateway that you're talking about, that inquiry is a huge part of that, right? You Maybe you start at this realization that you know Cadbury or Nestle has some issues, Maybe that prompts you to look into sugar and you're like, holy shit, sugar has a fucked up history. (laughs) But maybe like our friend Lex did, you stop eating sugar for a week (laughs) until you realize that's not feasible and you start to ask some more questions. So I think that's the kind of journey that ethical consumption can ideally take people on. But I do think there's something to this notion that capitalism presents ethical consumption basically as an avenue for buying your way out of moral dilemmas, right? So that's where we get some of the problematic versions of it, like eating humane meat or purchasing carbon offsets for a flight, right? They're really like indulgences that are only accessible to people who have more money. And obviously, these actions can't fix big structural problems like climate change. (laughs) Um, and the problem with that then is we we see this sort of limited version of ethical consumption, and then that then leaves us feeling disempowered because we've tried it, we've realized we can't disengage from sugar, we've realized that carbon offsets are bullshit, we've realized that humane meat isn't a real solution, and that more broadly, um, ethical consumption is expensive, it's transactional, and it's not really effective. And then that leaves us all feeling like, well, if I can't be perfect, why should I try it all? Yeah. Um, And that's like a really shitty place to be. But I I think that sort of misses the broader point of ethical consumption, right? So it's not about middle-class white influencers who are hawking boutique health products. That's like the worst (laughs) version of ethical consumption. It's about finding new avenues to meet our needs and pulling back Ah. that podcast name. (laughs) You said the name of the thing and the thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and pulling back from exploitative practices as much as we can. So Marxists actually call this alternative praxis, um, but basically it just means finding ways to do things differently. 
that's what I really like about ethical consumption is that it's people trying a bunch of different ways to extricate ourselves from capitalism. And that's an incredibly valuable thing. Just to give you some examples in case you're still a skeptic, right? There are lots of ways that ethical consumption gives us tools for combating late-stage capitalism through solidaristic relationships instead of, um, you know, exchange ones, right? So we've got mutual aid movements, we've got community swaps and things like that. There's also, you know, freeganism, which is for sure more of a fringe movement. Not everybody's going to become a dumpster diver. I'm definitely not going to be. One and done for us. (laughs) One and done for us. You know, there's the waste-free movement. Um, is it perfect? No, but it advocates for circularity rather than like the take-make-waste approach that we typically have. The Eat Local movement is all about connection to community and the way that food is made, right? And then veganism, um, you know, problematic for sure, but has made incredible progress in showing people that animal protein isn't necessary to be strong or healthy. But it's not an either or, right? You can be for collective action while also trying to consume as ethically as possible. Just ask any vegan activist you've ever met, right? (laughs) (laughs) Ethical consumption for me anyway, it doesn't stand apart from political action, but it's actually part of political action. And it and its associated movements show what is possible. It shows that alternative praxis, in other words. Yeah. And I think I'm glad you brought up the book, um, How to Be Perfect, because that is just a really approachable book. Like it's a very easy read and it kind of like sums up a lot of really cool ideas. So if people do like ethics, like Kristen and I do, <laughs> it's it's a really cool book to like kind of like goes over this idea that you're not going to be perfect. Right. And so you can't let that stop you from still trying to be better. And this doesn't just apply to, you know, being a consumer. It applies to creative endeavors and relationships and parenting. And the idea that we all have to be perfect is so toxic. And it stops us from just being our best selves. Like our best selves won't ever be perfect. Flaws are also part of what makes you like a wonderful, interesting person and what allows you to learn and be better. I try to look at my own flaws and consider what I like about them and what I don't like about them and aim to be like the best version of my flawed self that like I can be. I'm loud. I interrupt people. But I also am like a really engaged listener who loves to have an interesting dialogue and I love to ask questions. And I love that about myself. And there are ways to recognize what I love and to think of ways to grow those parts. What did we say in the very first episode? Don't let you know, perfect, be the enemy of good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is like, like it or not, we are all, every single one of us consumers. So what's the alternative to ethical consumption? Unethical (laughs) consumption, you know? (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think when people disregard it as a movement, they're really alienating people who could be stepping in to be allies. And I think that's something that like the left really struggles with is alienating each other. Yeah, we're going to have an episode about that later this season. So look look out for that. <laughs> so, okay, at least it sounds like, Kyla, you might be leaning towards real. I, I'm going to say real for this one, uh, but ethical consumption, real solution or false solution? Yeah, I think it's a real solution. I think people need to be more considerate of what it is and what it is not. And 
I think that's true of both people on the far left who are already like, you know, hardcore activists or living in the woods. And I think that's true of people who are on the far right who also would agree that maybe we should have a planet that is habitable. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the really horrifying things that I learned at some point a couple of years ago is that like a lot of like far right racist movements have like their own version of fair trade labels, which Ew. blew oh, my mind. Ooh. But <laughs> I think it like it's an idea that can fit into different ideologies and obviously like problematically applied in a lot of cases. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of it is like who who controls the narrative right now, right? And I think a lot of it is like when H and M slaps a giant green you know, window pane up that has like leaves on it. And it's like, come shop here to save the planet. And that's not a solution at all and should be illegal. And I think there was actually a case about greenwashing this year that has gone to court. So hopefully that is a thing that we see more of in the future. Just, you know, you can't just slap a green label on something and be like, we're natural, which I actually have something to talk about that in a, in a minute too. But I also feel like we need to really disengage from like transactional relationships and not just within, you know, exchange of money and our buying and selling capabilities, but like within our relationships with each other. I think because we all grew up in this capitalist system, you know, I was raised in a family that was very transactional. Uh, a lot of our generation was. The post-World War II rise of the boomer middle class in, you know, American identity politics, you know, every person for themselves, it's so pervasive that now I'm trying to recognize that mentality of like what I can give you to get what I want from you is like not a good way to be, but it's also like the whole society we live in. And so recognizing that is hard to do and something that I think is really important for people to start doing. There's a big political economy thinker called Carl Polanyi, and he talks about different kinds of, of relations, um, different ways of getting what we need. Um, and there's like the capitalist market exchange and then he also talks about reciprocity, which to me, like, really looks, I, th I think it might just be like how my headspace is so entrenched in capitalism, but I find it really hard to distinguish those. But I think it's this idea that, like, it can be asymmetrical, right? That, like, eventually somebody's going to give back to you, but it doesn't need to be, like, the purpose of the relationship. And it's also not like a one-to-one. -one. It's more sort of like this idea that, I help my family or my friend or whatever, and maybe they eventually help me. Maybe it's reciprocal, but not necessarily in the same way or the same time space or something like that. And that's not why I'm doing it. Okay, so I think we're both generally on the side of ethical consumption is real, but not all ethical consumption is real. <laughs> so do you have any good examples of ethical consumption gone wrong? Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> I used to work for a bookstore. I won't name it, but it's a big one. And it's a big one that Canadians will know for sure. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the CEO put out a book about basically ethical consumption in 2020, which was a re really weird time for this to come out. And it was... Terrible. It was terrible, <laughs> Kristen. It was so hard. And like... Look, yes, it's valuable that CEOs are talking about ethical consumption, but my problem with this book is it was like, here are all of the things you can buy from our store that will help you be a more ethical person. So like, you know, we sell 
Tupperware that is made of metal or ceramic instead of plastic or get a reusable bag. And it was just, it did have like good points in it, but it was like, it was a book that was mostly pictures and large words. And then like 20 pages at the back that were like, here's all of the things you can buy from us. And then they sold it for like $25. And so you had to buy this book for $25 that like marketed itself as telling you how to live in a world of consumption. And there was like a chapter on chemicals and there was a lot of decent information in there. But ultimately, it was a catalog that they were charging people for. (laughs) Yeah, just instead of prices, it's like feel goods. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I don't want to call the company out too hard because I feel like the intention was good. I, I can't know. I'm going to say the intention was probably good. But the delivery is, it packaged everything I dislike about ethical consumption into like one one spot. And then I had to like put it out on the shelves constantly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have another example of ethical consumption that I have a problem with, which is we actually got approached for a sponsorship opportunity a couple months ago from a company that I also won't name. I, mean, I probably <laughs> could name them. But it's it's like a it's like a smoothie company. They sell like a powder, and they almost got me. Like their their website is very good. Their marketing is very good. But ultimately, it's a part of diet culture. And I ended up listening to a few other episodes of other podcasts that like are sponsored by this product or that were talking about it um, in a way that was a little bit more critical. So I could kind of get both sides of it. But basically, like. There's so many products like this, and it's not just Alex Jones who's like, here's my (laughs) snake oil. You know what I mean? Like, the left has it too. And this is is an example of a product that, like, the FDA has not evaluated their claims. They are not using evaluated claims like organic. Um, They're using words like natural, you know? They talk about gut health. They use the words probiotic and gluten-free and keto and vegan and paleo and 75 vitamins and minerals, which is like... You're just going to pee out all of that. That's not how the body works. <laughs> so, like, it's frustrating because we're surrounded by products that are trying, like, products know we want to do better, right? And so they come at, at us with these promises and this this marketing language that's, like, health-focused and healthier and better for the planet. And then when you actually look at what they're selling, it's, like, a laundry list of claims, first of all, like, it's going to give you gut health and energy. And it's like, what does that even mean? You know? So like, and then you go to look at their receipts, and there aren't any, there's no research. (laughs) You know, there's, there's a, a saturated influencer space just full of people promoting this. And they're selling me on emotions, right? They're selling me the emotion of like wanting to be a better, better person. How do you calculate 12 servings of fruits and vegetables in a powder? This is just not a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've got like maybe a more complicated example we could go through. Yeah, sure, sure. And that is just Unilever. Oh, (laughs) Unilever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Unilever is a really complicated figure in the ethical consumption space because they have been with major NGOs like the World Wildlife Fund the major architect of some of the most reputable product labels that are out there, right? So we've talked about the Forest Stewardship Council and the Marine Stewardship Council in previous episodes of the podcast, and those are two really good examples. They are pretty good sustainable consumption labels. And, you know, there's arguably a fair amount of benefit that's come from the establishment of those structures. Having a big company like Unilever behind them is beneficial and sort of drives the market in a certain direction. On the other hand, 
Unilever like pretty aggressively fought against things like vegan mayonnaise the first time it came out. And, you know, they eventually thought it, found out it was a losing battle and now they sell their own. But it's like a self-serving calculation, right? And this is one thing, one dynamic that's really complicated, I think, for ethical consumption. There's another good example of it in conflict minerals of the same dynamic, where you have companies that were signing on to certain ethical consumption initiatives at the same time as they're like aggressively lobbying the U.S. government not to put in place disclosure requirements for conflict minerals. So it's like, how do you evaluate even companies that are sort of walking the walk to a certain degree? And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and, and I and I think that's fair. And I think that's why people are so skeptical of ethical consumption. There is no ethical consumption under capitalism. And I mean, that's why you need to do what you can as an individual. And also, we should work to change the system that we are in. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, the buck doesn't stop at your bamboo toothbrush, Kyla. <laughs> What if it's a really nice bamboo toothbrush? That you never, ever have to throw away. You just wash it forever. Oh, boy, Kyla. Do I need to talk to you about how often you should replace your toothbrushes? <laughs> yeah, it's, we've had this conversation before. In our very first Christmas episode, Kristen sent me a new toothbrush because in our teeth episode, like episode three or whatever, I was like, oh, I haven't changed my toothbrush in forever. And I was using a bad one that like, and now I have gum recession. I'm old, Kristen. <laughs> You brushed your teeth too hard. <laughs> I did. I was too aggressive of a toothbrusher with a terrible toothbrush. Our third segment of this format is supposed to be how could it work better? So thoughts? There should be more marketplaces that have curated products. I should be able to go to an Amazon. And it, there are places like this kind of popping up where I don't have to do the research on every single product that I look at. And I think the world is going in that direction, but like it's not sustainable for everybody to be constantly doing all the research, which is what our show was about for the last three years. So like, you know, we do the research and then we recommend to you, but you know, we're not giving you product names. There needs to be a cultural shift around the idea of consumption in general. Like at what point do you need to own a shovel or should there just be a community shed where you can go get the shovel when you need to use it, right? Like there's no reason for... 30 houses on one block to each have a lawnmower if everyone only mows their lawn once a week. And like repair. There needs to be a better culture around repair, which is something that, again, is a policy shift we need to see, especially in technology where you're not allowed to repair your stuff. Yeah. And I think that's where the point I was going to make comes in a little bit, which is that ethical consumption could work better if we had more robust regulation that supported what consumers are already trying to do. So whether that's things like right to repair legislation or trade agreements that embed environmental and labor standards more robustly into them or enacting modern slavery legislation, things like that. Or, you know, as you had mentioned, um, there are some like competition agencies that are now going after greenwashing. There's a good example of that right now in Canada where the Competition Bureau is investigating RBC, which is a major bank here, uh, for their greenwashing claims. So I think more regulation and actually just better funding for regulators that exist so that we actually enforce the laws that are on the books. This is something that we talk about when we talk about labor rights, that a lot of the times the rules are already there on paper. 
It's just that the enforcement isn't. So ethical consumption, it relies on transparency. And there are a lot of movements out there that are trying to get supply chains to be more transparent. Fashion Revolution is a great example. But governments need to be stepping up in a much better way to provide consumers with the tools that they need to make choices that we all want to make, right? And to ban practices that like 80% of us can agree should be banned, right? Yeah. I shouldn't be able to walk into a store and have to choose between a chocolate bar that was made by people in forced labor conditions and a chocolate bar that was not. Or like I go to the I go to the dairy section and like there shouldn't be the choice of dairy products from cows that have been raised on factory farms that have had terrible lives and more expensive, you know, dairy products that are from animals that were treated well. Like that shouldn't that just shouldn't be a choice I have to make. <laughs> yeah, and like speaking for future me, I don't want to have to choose products that were made with minerals that were not mined under the sea. Just ban it. <laughs> ban sea mining. <laughs> yeah, because like we're all so tired. We're all so beat down by the capitalist system that we exist in that there isn't space left for us at the end of the day to research which products we're buying were made with deep sea mined minerals. You know what I mean? Especially since <laughs> like we were just talking about the supply chains, there's no transparency. So there's no way to know anyways. Yeah. But one thing I will say how ethical consumption could work a little bit better beyond things that governments need to do. I think we're seeing sort of like a rise in communities that help us to meet our needs outside of that sort of transaction, right? So whether that's tool libraries, whether that is repair groups, uh, or even repair like info sites online, I think You Fix It is the name of one of the major ones for tech products. Those are all things that could help ethical consumption to work more like that broad depiction that Kyla and I want to see and less like greenwash, <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> so, ethical consumption. Yes, a solution needs work. Looking forward to looking at more solutions with you, Kristen. I'm, I, I am somebody who really likes positivity and solutions and... I think that there's a gap in that space right now. I, I think that more people are recognizing that there needs to be more positivity in how we frame the solutions to problems. Like we, we talk about problems a lot and like people are like, yeah, the world's fucked. We get it. Now what? You know? And so I'm really excited to be diving deeper into these ideas with you. And I am so pleased that we didn't come out of this feeling ashamed of ourselves for talking about consumer ethics for three years. <laughs> Yeah, it felt like, <laughs> maybe this is just my own perspective, but I felt a bit defensive, like every single guest we've emailed and then had to have like a week-long email chain with them about how <laughs> we we do care about collective solutions uh, and ethical consumption isn't limited. But we won't have to have that discussion ever again, <laughs> Kyla. It's so exciting. <laughs> we sure won't. We sure won't. But also, like, that is just, that's a space that we are in, Kristen, where we were able to see the gap in communication between, like, activists and the people who are just trying to live their lives, right? And we're we're here to bridge that gap. And so I'm excited to continue to do that and to look at, like, the future more. I love futurism. I love talking about where things are going. And there's going to be a lot more of that coming up, which we're both really excited about. 
And if people want to find more discussions uh, on like the left wing spectrum, you can go check out the Harbinger Media Network, where we have a ton of partner shows that talk about all sorts of things. Like one of my favorites is Tech Won't Save Us, where they talk about, is tech going to save us? No. <laughs> so check out our partners at harbingermedianetwork.com and we'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>